Like many of you, I enjoyed pastors going over the events of the last week, the Passion Week, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about all that the Lord did on our behalf in that instant where he died and then rose again on the third day. Our salvation is only possible through what he did out of love. Our relationship back with the Father is because of what he did on the cross. The new characteristics that we have received, our new body, our new we're new creatures. The fact that our righteousness came from him, imputed from him, because he was righteous. We were made holy because he's holy. We are in a process of becoming purified in our life, becoming closer and closer to the form of Jesus Christ himself. But looking through scripture, and I go all over scripture during the week when I'm at home, doing my Old Testament studies and branching into the New Testament periodically to clarify some point that I'm going over. Our church is wholly dependent on what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, just as our salvation is. Scripture says that unless he went away, the Holy Spirit would not come. And there's the power that we have in our church. So tonight I want to look at our church, starting from the point of the Lord leaving on his ascension up into heaven. What was the church like at that point? What did they have to face? How did they get from there to where we are today? I want to start off in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. If you're able to rise in respect to God's word, please stand with me as I read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Let me get my reading glasses on. I'm at the point where I can either see far away your faces or I can see my Bible in front of me, but not the two. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Before you sit down, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would guide and direct us tonight as we look into your word. Help us to understand more about your church, all that you do for it, all that you did for it, all that you continue to do for it. May we be 
giving you the honor and the praise in all that we do. May we thank you for all that you do for us. You're such a great God, and your son is such a great son, and did so much for us. We praise you and thank you tonight. Praise us in thy name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a hymn that goes along with this verse about the glorious church. I don't, couldn't find it in our book. I've seen it in some other hymnal, hymnal books. So I took their phraseology. I titled my sermon tonight, Without Spot or Wrinkle. Without Spot or Wrinkle. Christ compares his love for the church to the love between a husband and a wife a very intimate relationship. And it talks about in that verse that he sanctifies and cleanses the church with the water of his word. Sanctify again means a progression of holiness. Cleansing, of course, nobody would come before God's presence unless he was clean. People before they went to the Passover in the Old Testament had to go through ritual cleaning the priests had to ritually clean, cleanse themselves before they would do the office that God assigned to them. We are cleansed to do God's work as well. And the fact that it's a glorious church is not us, never will be us. It's God's involved in it. The church gives him praise, gives him glory. And the fact that He's making it without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Shows you how much he cares about his church. No blemish, holy. When Christ ascended up into heaven some 40 days after he rose from the tomb, Acts chapter one talks about there were approximately 120 still meeting together and trying to decide what, what do we do next. Here you have the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the super pastor who knew everything, could do anything, could speak, could heal, could teach, could lead, could train, you name it, he could do it. And he did it for those three and a half years or so. He's gone. What do, what do the 120 do? He was, they were told to wait until the, in Jerusalem until something would happen. They weren't quite sure what was going to happen. But they waited. And of course, after Acts chapter 2 of the book of Acts is what happened. Holy Spirit coming in power and might upon those 120 or so, empowering them for the work that God had for them. And things took off from that point in a marvelous and miraculous way. First they added to the church and then that wasn't good enough. Now they multiplied upon the church and the 120 grew to thousands and thousands and pretty soon when persecution came, the people who were in Jerusalem spread out into the known world of the time. And fortunately, God used the fine road system that the Roman Empire had made for their use, for their own use. And they spread to various cities around. Things spread. It was as 
as fire spreading in a firestorm, as this new belief system, Christianity, spread out into the world. The opponents of it would complain that the world's been set on its head, that they couldn't understand what was happening. But then the world will never understand what true belief is about until they themselves accept the Lord Jesus Christ and come into that family. Acts chapter 5 verses 29 to 32 talks about that we ought to obey God rather than men. The church is God's design, not our own. He sets up what it should look like, how it should function, what the hierarchical structure of the church would be. He provides his complete word to tell us what we need to do in all, most all situations. And if a particular situation is not quite, quite mentioned, we have enough other scripture that we can go to that will tell us what we need to do. It's a marvelous structure compared to a body, a living body, a breathing body. As people come to a church, it grows, it can do more things, the Lord gives them more responsibility. As people move away and talents go off into other areas, the Lord will replace that talent with other people and the work will continue. But all the work, everything that is done has to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus for him, in his might, in his wisdom, in his power. When we try doing it ourselves, you'll fall flat in your face. It's his church, and he tells how it should be. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 to 39 talk about, through this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Moses' law told them what their problem was, but it could not make them right. Jesus Christ, through his church, takes that next step. He not only tells you what is wrong, he tells you how to, what is right and how to get to that point. So it's a better situation than they had under the law of Moses. Acts chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, talks about the churches were established in the faith and increased in number daily. Just as the Christian walk is a walk of faith, so the church operates on the basis of faith as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, talks about the church is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. For the perfecting of the saints, part of our sanctification, being part of a church, and growing closer and closer to the nature of our Lord, for the work of the ministry. He sets up the ministries that the particular local church is going to be involved in. He gives it the power. He gives it the, the, the wisdom. He gives it the, the work to do. We need to yield ourselves and be part of the solution. For the edifying of the body of Christ, that's something I enjoy being part of. We edify one another. You have a talent, you have a talent, I may have a talent, 
We work together and we bring each other up rather than staying on the, on the same plane or, or going, going backwards. It's a marvelous institution and I'm glad to be a part of it. I hope you are as well. I've heard adjectives of special mentioned as far as the church is concerned, a special place. Uh, I know at various points in my own church history, I've been in situations where the Lord is doing a particularly interesting thing with us. And people will come in and say, wow, this really feels special. Something is happening here. You can, you can feel it. And the church is an exciting place. It's not just a, a place where we meet. It's where we worship the Lord. We worship God. We edify one another. We do his ministries. We build up each other. We go out into the community and do things. It's a marvelous, glorious church. I want to look, pause now, look back a little bit. The people who started in that first church, that small number of people, had a heritage that brought them to the place where they were. And that's going back into the Old Testament, which as most of you know, I love going back into the Old Testament and studying through what life was like back then, how God worked with his people under the Mosaic law, and then all these little verses that you'll see in, in the Old Testament that point ahead to the time of Christ and what life would be like under the Lord Jesus Christ, his Messiah. How did Israel do in the Old Testament? What was their worship situation like? Well, for the most part, it wasn't very good. We had some good prophets. We had some good priests. There were some good judges, some good kings. But for the most part, while God stayed at a very high level, always faithful, always loving, always merciful, always graceful, his people were not so much. As Brother David was talking about this morning, and I think Brother Ken was also talking about a little bit in Sunday school, it was a up and down ride for most of Israel's history in the Old Testament. What were some of the problems? Well, the biggest one, I think, would be idolatry. Uh, as you look through the history of Israel, going through the wilderness, they had their tabernacle that they would assemble and dis disassemble as they went through the wilderness journey, having left Egypt under Moses, heading towards the promised land. God presence was in the tabernacle, just as his presence was later on in the temple. But if you look at the prophets, the books of the prophets, you'll see something like this. Amos chapter 5, verses 25 to 26. God was talking through Amos. It says, for 40 years, talking to Israel, you have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chion, your images, on the outside, it looked like they were being obedient and carrying the tabernacle around, setting it up when God told them to and worshiping God at his tabernacle. But their hearts, as Amos, Ezekiel, Isaiah talk about, was not always where it should be. 
they were going through outward motions of worshiping the Lord, but inwardly, they were worshiping all the idols, Baal, Moloch, you name them, all these Canaanite idols that they were seeing as they went through the wilderness. They were not worshiping the Lord, and God knew it. They complained an awful lot, too, didn't they? As soon as they were out of Egypt, they were complaining that their food wasn't what they liked. That they missed their onions and garlic and flavorings and such. And what was this manna that they kept getting fed out in the wilderness? Day after day, manna, 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 manna. Not too much flavor, not too much taste. They wanted other stuff and they complained, complained, complained. They were afraid of the nations around them as they marched through the wilderness. They complained about that. They complained about not having enough water. Of course, Moses lost his temper over that one time and caused God to have to chastise him that he would not enter the promised land because he had not trusted God at that critical moment when he was supposed to speak to the rock and he struck it twice. They complained. I thought, well, what complaining is, I like to read some of the classic books and they were actually given a definition of complaining talking about you complain when you're not happy with what you have, but you want something else you see over there. So this isn't good enough. This is what you think you want. You're not happy with what God provides you. You want something different or something more. So you complain, complain, complain. God does not like complaining. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord. He doesn't like that. He wants you to trust him fully, understand that what he does for you is the best, and that your idea of what you think is best is not the best, maybe the worst. The people were disobedient. Joshua chapter 5, verse 6 talks about 40 years in the wilderness because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. 40 years. They were actually at the gates of the promised land a little over two years. And that's when the spies were sent out into the land to search it out. And of course, you know the story about the spies, 12 spies. 10 came back and said, no, 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 we can't do it. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Cities are too big. Cities are too strong. Giants we saw, no chance, no way. We ought to go back to Egypt right now before anyone gets hurt. Just the two, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, 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 no. God knows what he's doing. He'll get us through. He's gotten us through the wilderness. But no, they didn't want to. They, they were disobedient. God certainly doesn't like disobedience. He wants you to obey. All through the Old Testament particularly, you see obey commandments, obey commandments, obey commandments. Disobedience is not one of the things on God's list of to do. Another biggie, they did not keep his Sabbaths. 2 Chronicles 36.21 says, Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, she lay desolate to fulfill threescore and ten years. Why did they go to captivity in Babylon for 70 years? It's because the land didn't get her Sabbaths when they should have. And God was going to say, God told them, you're going to get off the land until my, my land rests as it should have rested. And you've learned your lesson, then you can come back. And if, if you do the math, it was uh, 
one year for every, uh, let's see now, one, one, one week, I guess, for every year that they were disobedient, that they ended up with the 70 years. They rebelled against the Lord. They didn't believe him. Numbers 14, 9, and 11. Rebel not, against, rebel not ye against the Lord. How long will it be ere they believe me? Rebellions as the sin of witchcraft. And a person who rebels is certainly not going to live fully by faith. So that's not a good one. They rejected God's word. Matthew 23, 31 says, Ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Not only didn't, didn't they want to hear the message of the true prophets, but they killed the true prophets. And their itching ears went to listen to the false prophets, which got them into trouble time and time again. They rejected God's word. They forsook the covenant of the Lord God, Deuteronomy 29, 25. They have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers. And this was the close relationship that God had with his people in the Old Testament, was the covenant relationship. He promised to be their God, to provide all of their need, to take care of them, to do everything that a leader would have to do for his people, if only they would obey him and worship him only. And, of course, we've already seen that they had idols in their heart right from the beginning, so that didn't work. So they forsook God's covenant. What did God declare in the Old Testament that they should be doing? I already mentioned this in, in, in bit. Deuteronomy 4.2 says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you keep the whole word. If he commands it, you do it. Don't question him. Deuteronomy 12.32 says something similar. Whatsoever, what, what things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. What God says is exactly what he means. Nothing less, nothing more. And don't add or, or take away. That's repeated in the New Testament as well. Deuteronomy 6.25 says, It shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he hath commanded us. Looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, belief in God, heart belief in God, brought righteousness. Recall, uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But the Lord Jesus Christ is still the key. If he, did, if he had not come and died in sacrifice his own body on our behalf, I don't think that would have worked. It was knowing that he would come that allowed this to work, that people in the Old Testament looking forward to Christ got their righteousness. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, The Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness. Remember after the two years of going almost in and then being turned away because of their disobedience. They got 38 more years piled on top of their wanderings. 
the Lord God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep the commandments or no. So there was a reason why it was 40 years. God needed to test his people, get them ready to go into the promised land. They weren't ready after two years. They were barely ready after 40 years, but God let them in at that point. Deuteronomy 8.3, man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now this was quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ when Satan tempted him, tempted him in the wilderness, that the word of God is more important even than our physical bread. And we need to be nourishing our spiritual body certainly at least as much as we nourish our body with real bread. More so, I think, because most of us probably don't need as much bread as we eat, but we do need more word of God. And finally here, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Sounds good for us today, too. That's a good one. Fearing, fearing God because he is a bigger God than we are, and he is a lot more powerful, and he is a lot smarter, and he knows a lot better. How many people in scripture do you know about that challenged God to his face and got away with it? I don't think I know any, and there won't be any. Loving him, we love him because he first loved us. He gives us the, the example of love, so then we just reflect that back to him. We need to serve the Lord thy God with our full heart and all of our soul and we're not keeping commandments for righteousness, but it's important to keep the commandments of God in this day and age as well. But these things were things that Israel should have done, and for the most part, they did not do a very good job. When I look at the Old Testament, and I see areas where God wanted his people to be faithful, and they were not, what faithfulness I did see came from individuals. And many times the individuals were not even from the nation of Israel. They were from scattered nations around. For example, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. This one was a, a, a widow woman who was out gathering sticks to fix a fire to cook the last of her food during the famine so that she and her son would have the last bit of food and then that would be it. They would just sit down and wait to die. And a prophet by the name of Elijah came by and said, oh, excuse me, but before you make your meal, would you please make me some food? And then you can go ahead and make the meal for you and your son. How would you feel about that? You've only got enough, probably not enough, for you and your son. And here's the stranger coming in who said, make me some first and then eat your own. I think most of us, our inclination would be, I'm sorry, but we don't have enough food for the house next door. But she believed him to be a man of God. And by faith, 
she did what he said. And not only did she end up having enough food after that, but this was the one where the barrel of meal and the cruise of oil for the entire time of the famine never failed. Somehow, miraculously, she had enough food to feed her family until the famine was over. She showed faith. That's what God wanted Israel to do. Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, we have the story of Joshua and Rahab the harlot. Now, Israel's own people were still a little apprehensive about whether they could take the city of Jericho. But here we have one of the citizens of Jericho, Rahab, had seen what God had done through his people up to that point and realized that this was a God to be feared. This was a God to listen to. And she believed what God was saying to his people for her own self and for her own family. And she was willing to put her own life and the lives of her family members on, on, the, uh, on the edge there. Uh, they could die uh, by saving the, the spies that were sent out to search out the city of Jericho. And she was rewarded for her faithfulness and obedience. Of course, her name falls into the list of the people who led to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, she showed faith. And a third example, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 19, a man by the name of Naaman, who was a captain of the forces of Syria, had leprosy and had a slave in his household that had come from Israel who said, oh, I know of a prophet down in Israel. If you go see him, he'll say, he'll heal you of your leprosy. So he took, went to the king. They got together a whole lot of rich goods, made a caravan train down to see the, sir, the prophet. And the prophet told him, well, just go wash in the River Jordan seven times and you'll be okay. That was it. And Naaman at first got a little bit upset because he wanted something great to happen. You know, the skies to open up and lightning to strike and all the people of the city come out and say, oh wow, what a great thing just happened to you. But he was reminded that if he had told you something that was great, you would have done it. Why don't you do it? You're, you're a leper. You're not going to get better by yourself. So Naaman, by faith, believed, went to the river, did what the prophet said, and got healed. But three individuals, this is what God wanted to see from Israel and didn't see. What positives did Israel have? Well, I, I scratched my head in thinking about that. I did find three examples where it looked like they were obedient not necessarily on their own, but under Solomon, under Hezekiah, and under Josiah, good leaders that brought the people to a place of obedience. Solomon was dedicating the temple with a feast that went 14 days, twice the number of days, and got the people together, and it was a great feast that they had. Hezekiah was celebrating the Passover, and he, he ended up with a great Passover that brought down Judah and many from Israel as well to come down to Jerusalem to celebrate that together. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 1 to 19, another Passover under King Josiah, who was another good king, and it mentioned of that one that there was no Passover like that kept in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet. But it took a good, strong leader to get them revved up together to do what was right. But three examples that were good. Looking at the church, as they started after the Lord's ascension, again, we, we just mentioned before, they lost the Lord Jesus Christ, the great master, teacher, leader, king. What did they do? Well, when the Holy Spirit came and gave them the power, things, again, happened rather quickly. Acts chapter 4, verses 34, talks about the fact that neither was there among them any that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. So they shared the bounty that they had with those that lacked. They were generous. They were not selfish. That was a good step. Men like Stephen came out of the woodwork. I don't know where Stephen was before this, but apparently he, he'd been worked on by the Lord to give him the knowledge and the ability to preach. But Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So people were being brought by God out of the church to do great things, to be an example to the world around them. Of course, we know the story about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8, being brought from God from Samaria, where he was already doing a good work, down to a place where he met the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch going back to his home. He just happened to have the scroll of, Israel, of uh, Isaiah with him. No coincidence. And through that, was able to preach the Lord Jesus Christ, got him saved. He went down to Ethiopia and there's still a very strong Christian group down in Ethiopia, and uh, probably as a result of much of what this man brought down with him. So people were, were doing things, preaching, wonders, miracles. Acts chapter 11 talks about the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Churches were helping churches. They had a need in another church to lack something. You had some. They would send messengers down with goods for them to help them out. No problem about this is ours. We're going to keep it. Acts chapter 13 talks about the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. A good state to be in. You get joy, true joy, by having a good relationship with God. It doesn't come from the little things that we think bring joy around us. Only true joy comes from being in the will of God. Acts chapter 14 says, Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The Lord did some great things with the early Christians in the early church. It was a special time, required some special things, and God provided what they needed to strengthen their own churches, to spread the churches, to help the people around them. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 11, talks about the Berean church. 
that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So not only were they getting good preaching, but they would go back into their scriptures each time they heard something and check it, make sure it was right. And that's something we should all be doing, no matter who is speaking, what their reputation is. Compare scripture with what you hear. Is it true, is it not? Are you hearing the true word of God? I'll finish up with what God declares some of the things for our church today. And I picked this out of, you might want to go there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 to 22. And we're going to camp here for the rest of my message. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 22. Starting in verse 14, we're told that we should be warning them who are unruly or disorderly. So part of our job as a church is to warn. We're to comfort the feeble-minded. We need to be a comfort for those that may not have all the faculties that we do. We need to support the weak. That's a good thing. If you're strong, you can help support the weak. And we need to be patient toward all men. That's something I think we all need to work on. Uh, we tend to get a little bit uh, angry before we slow down and, and get patient sometimes. But that's, that's verse 14. Verse 15 talks about ever following that which is good, both among ourselves and all men. And that's certainly a good thing. Who is good? God is good. What is good? What is in scripture is good. Good outside of God is really not good. It may be better than bad, but it's really not good. Good works only start to accumulate once you're saved. So we need to be saved in a relationship with God before we are able to do good. But do good among ourselves, among all men. We should have a good reputation, not only in our church, but outside. Verse 16 talks about rejoicing evermore. And what do we rejoice in? Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the position that God has you in. You're his child now. You're going to get the same inheritance that Christ is going to get. You've got a home in heaven waiting for you. You are protected from much of what goes on around you in the world. You are given purpose in life. You are given direction in life. Your abilities come from God. Your job comes from God. Your house comes from God. Your family comes from God, on and on and on. You certainly have a lot to rejoice in, and we should rejoice. Pray without ceasing, verse 17. And should be a... In the back of your mind at, at all times, subconscious maybe, a prayerful attitude. Whenever you meet a new problem, a new situation, remember to pray about it before you act. Save yourself a lot of trouble. Save yourself a lot of time. Let God talk to you. And combining that with your daily Bible reading, he'll bring verses back to your memory. He'll bring situations in the Bible back to your memory to help you as you get in a prayerful attitude with the Lord. Verse 18, 
In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, me, us. We should always have a thankful heart. And it's hard when things don't go well, I understand that. But there's always something you can be thankful for. Uh, I'm reading the story about uh, Robinson Crusoe being shipwrecked on an island. According to the story, he was there for 28 years. And the story is actually quite a bit about his relationship with God more than it is about race relations, too. Um, he, he realized that he was, as the prodigal son, trying to get away from God all the time. And then God puts him on this island all by himself. And then he brings his old ship within sight of the, his island, and the next day, he's able to take most of what's on the ship onto his island, so he now has tools, he has clothing, he has supplies, he has food, seeds, all sorts of stuff, and for 28 years, he was able to live by himself, and he realized that this was God's providence for him, because it got his, right, his life straight. God needed to, as it were, hit him on the head with the two-by-four before he got his attention. Once he had his attention, he became right with God. And then the rest of the story is actually quite a beautiful story of converting people to Christ, treating his fellow man as fellow men should be treated, and giving God the thanks for everything that happened to him. So it's, it, it's a good, good reminder. Quench not the spirit, verse 19. And that can be easy to do. The spirit is trying to run your life in the right direction. Every time you say no, complain, fight it, you're quenching his spirit and causing delay in your development and causing God to have to do other things on you that might not have been needed otherwise. So when you feel the spirit moving you in a particular direction, thank him for it and go that direction. Verse 20 talks about despising, not prophesying. We have the word of God. So as you read something in your Bible, in your morning reading, your evening reading, hear it preached, and you don't quite understand or agree with it, you probably have the problem, not scripture. So listen to what God says and try to tailor your life that direction rather than trying to change scripture to fit what you want to do. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, verse 21. A lot of, in the world, on the surface, may sound good, but when you put it to the test, you find out it's not good. People can say the right words, but not have the same meaning, and you have to determine that as well. God gives us, I think, a sense of, once you understand his word, once you understand how God operates, when things happen, you get a sense of whether this is, does this sound right? Or is there something funny going on? And if there's something funny going on, then search it out and then try to avoid it. But things that are clearly good in scripture, cling to those. And verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. And that can be extended not only to evil, but to things of the world to things of man as opposed to things of God and take, run the whole gamut of that. We should look different, we should act different, we should think differently, we should talk differently. So 
Put the word of God in your heart. Read the word of God. Pray to him. Understand what he wants for you, because it may not be exactly the same as what he wants for me. And learn to trust him in everything that happens. So just repeating Ephesians chapter 5 again. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. For the date.